Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. And this particular episode describes the murders of three small children. So listener discretion is advised. And bienvenidos, bitches, to Fruit Loops. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. No. <laughs> yes, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist allegedly and we are wendy and beth she's wendy i'm beth we're not journalists investigators or psychologists just a couple of gals interested in true crime also the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode also our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use fruitloopspod for all of our social media. Join the discussion by using the hashtag Fruit Loops Pod Discussion or by joining our Facebook group. All of the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. That's right. And if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App, just on the Cash App, not the Cash App, the Cash App. <laughs> just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch for sale on our website. But if you can't have monetarily, no problem. You can always give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And be sure to share our show with your friends. So yeah. who 
are we talking about today, Beth? So this one's going to be a tough one, y'all. The mm-hmm. subject today is John Allen Rubio and Angela Camacho, a couple who killed their own children. Mm. Uh, so familicide rather than serial killing, but uh, worthy of talking about. And uh, this subject was suggested to us by our Fruity Melissa. Yes. Thank you, Fruity Melissa. This was a tough one indeed. Yeah. But before we get into the terribleness of the story. Uh, how you doing? I'm good. Uh, I watched Hamilton a couple of times on Disney Plus over the weekend and uh, bawled my eyes out. So I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it was it was glorious. I've watched yeah. it four times. Oh, my gosh. Uh, in the span of two days. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it was Independence Day. So I made the yeah. kid watch it. You know, one of them liked it. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, we had Fourth of July. It was fun. We swam and ate hot dogs to commemorate. Commemorate America's independence from Britain. Uh, it's a holiday that brings about mixed feelings for me as a Black American and the kid of an immigrant. Yeah, uh, I love America so much that I have no choice but to criticize it because I know it can do better. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I like that. Uh, so now we are going to get into some listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. Oh, what's in the bag, Beth? Alana the Llama posted via Apple Podcasts. I usually don't write reviews, but I wish more people knew about this gem. This is the only podcast I can binge listen to all day without getting sick of the host's voices. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's because they cover cases that no one else knows about or covers. I used to think that China just had no serial killers or that Chinese American serial killers weren't a thing, but I'm learning a lot of new things here. Also, I love the segments. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip (laughs) for you. And uh, Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. As a POC teen, Chinese American, who was adopted by a white family and who is paranoid of getting murdered, Mm -hmm. I feel like this is the most educational podcast I could possibly listen to. I am learning more about culture, my favorite topic, and how not to get schmurdered, which will (laughs) definitely come in handy for the future. Please continue to grow, and thank you for making an amazing podcast. Oh, hip hop yeah. air horns, Alana the Llama. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, keep those iTunes reviews coming. Speaking of, we got another one from A. Gusif. Uh, that's a really good name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, starting the podcast from the very beginning, oh boy, after a recommendation this week from Murder Squad Pod, Wendy makes points from 2019, and the rest of the world is finally hearing them. I've been saying this shit for <laughs> decades. <laughs> Sharing and protesting for now in 2020. So relevant, and wish I had been listening to earlier. I'm having trouble not falling apart listening to the news today. In any case, my six-year-old daughter is now humming Abyss because I've been humming it for the past 30 episodes and I've downloaded a hip-hop air horn. Awesome. Keep up the great work and a goose. Hip-hop air horns to you, a goose. Hip-hop air horns to you, a goose. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And we have a new patron. And since I'm re-obsessed with Hamilton, um, I'm going to give this a whirl in the style of 
Eliza. Okay, so here we go. Don't judge me either. <laughs> okay, her name is Christina. Christina, remind me what we're looking for. She's looking for me. Christina is looking for to crime at work. She's looking for to crime at work. Work. She's looking for to crime at work. Whoa, 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 work. Woo! Woo! Good one. I like it. Thank you. And hip hop air horns to Christina. Yeah. Thank you, Christina. <laughs> so now we are going to take a quick ad break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. We would like to send some shine to our sis, Bethany, who is the founder of Crackers in Soup, a podcast management team waiting to help you with the background services of your podcast. Their mission is to provide you with the freedom and time while getting your podcast heard. They actually enjoy being behind the scenes process, um, which, by the way, is a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> Take it from us. So <laughs> let them do what they enjoy while you do what you enjoy contact them at crackersinsoup.com and follow them on ig at b crackers in soup and if you have any business or know of one that is a bipac or lgbtq led business get at us so we can give them some shine yeah we'd love to do that yeah all right we are back so Remind me who we're talking about. <laughs> uh, who's our subject today? <laughs> today we're talking about John Allen Rubio and Angela Camacho, who murdered their own children and then decapitated them. And uh, this is a tough one, so please be forewarned. We will give you another heads up before we get into the really tough stuff. Yeah, so now we're going to get into the stats of the story, which normally is Wendy's favorite part of the story because I'm a sick fuck. But <laughs> this is not that case. So no hip hop air horns will be had at this time. So here we go. Uh, the, here are the players. John Allen Rubio, who was born on August 12th, 1980 in Brownsville, Texas. His common-law wife, the mother of these children, was Angela Camacho. She was born on November 11th, 1979. And on March 11th, 2003, the couple murdered their three children, Julissa Quesada, who was three, John Estefan Rubio, who was one, Mary Jane Rubio, who was only two months old at the time. And I didn't, until 20 minutes before we started recording, looked at photos of these kids, and they were the most beautiful, happy little angels. And yeah. I, I, uh, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. So um, now we are going to dive into the setting. Take us there, Beth. The setting is Brownsville, Texas, located in the Rio Grande Valley. Brownsville is a border town, and its sister city on the Mexican side is Matamoros. Brownsville's population is about 200,000, and Matamoros has a population in excess of 750,000. So it's a little smaller uh, mm -hmm. than Matamoros. Yeah. The town has more of a tropical climate and landscape than we typically think of when we picture Texas. Brownsville began as a Mexican War military post, originally as Fort Texas, but after a siege on the post in May of 1846, it was named after the commander of the post, Major Jacob Brown 
who died during the siege. So now, at that time, Fort Brown. During the Civil War, it was called the back door to the Confederacy because trade goods could be taken to Mexico and then shipped out, avoiding the Union blockades of Confederate ports. The ongoing Union-Confederate contest for control of the fort also resulted in the last battle of the Civil War at Palmito Ranch on May 13, 1865. And although the post served as a training ground for soldiers who fought in World Wars I and II, the post was closed towards the end of World War II. The Brownsville Affair occurred in 1906. It was a racial incident that grew out of tensions between whites in Brownsville, Texas, and black infantrymen stationed at nearby Fort Brown. About midnight on August 13th to the 14th in 1906, rifle shots on a street in Brownville uh, killed one white man and wounded another. White commanders at Fort Brown believed all the black soldiers were in their barracks at the time of the shooting, but the city's mayor and other whites claimed that they had seen black soldiers on the street firing indiscriminately, and they produced spent shells from army rifles to support their statements. Despite evidence that the shells had been planted as part of a frame-up job, investigators accepted the statements of the mayor and the white citizens, as they typically do, when the black soldiers insisted that they had no knowledge of the shooting, President Theodore Roosevelt, you know that asshole who's on uh, (laughs) uh, Mount Rushmore, ordered the 167 black infantrymen discharged without honor, claiming conspiracy of silence. His action caused much resentment among the blacks and drew some criticism from whites as well. But a U.S. Senate committee, which investigated the episode in 1907 to 1908, upheld Roosevelt's action. The Brownsville affair has ever since been a matter of controversy, and with the rise of the civil rights movement, it became a matter of embarrassment to the Army. Mm. After the publication in 1970 of John D. Weaver's The Brownsville Raid, which argued that the discharged soldiers had been innocent, the Army conducted a new investigation in 1972 and reversed the order of 1906. Too little, too late, guys. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going (laughs) to say. (laughs) Great minds think alike. Yeah. (laughs) So drugs and poverty were everywhere in the part of Brownsville where John Allen Rubio and Angela Camacho lived. It is one of the poorest parts of the country. And more than once, Brownsville has been ranked as the poorest city in America. The area has a high crime rate that includes sexual assaults, drug use and sales, as well as sex work. But again, these are not activities people engage in because there's so much fun. Uh, It's because they need to survive and also escape the pain of their living situation. As a historically disenfranchised area of the country, there has never been a medical school in the region, and there is a desperate lack of mental health professionals to treat the population. Mm, so not um, they're not living in the greatest um, place, <laughs> the greatest place. Right. Yeah. Um, so a lot of hardship. Now we're going to get into 
Rubio and Camacho's early life. So John Allen Rubio was born on August 12th in 1980 to Hilda and Manuel Rubio shortly after Hurricane Allen. Um, and he had an, and I bring up her, the hurricane because that's how a lot of people in hurricane like land mark um, times. Yeah, time. that was around Hurricane Allen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so he had an older brother, Manuel Jr., and two younger brothers, Jose and Rodrigo. John grew up in Brownsville, surrounded by superstition, dysfunction, and drug and alcohol abuse. According to Rubio, both his mother and grandmother were practitioners of brujeria, or witchcraft. His grandmother has been described by other family members as mean, with long, puffy hair and three-inch curled fingernails. But they deny that she was a bruja or a witch. Hmm. John remembers his mother fondly from when he was a child, but said that she became addicted to crack and she changed after that. Hilda's sister said that she was a good mother and provider, and then she just turned around and went for the worst. She had been a nursing assistant, but she quit her job and afterwards her drug use became worse. It's been alleged that Hilda did crack while she was pregnant with John, but she has always denied this, although she did admit to drinking a six-pack of beer a day when she was pregnant. Oh! Yeah. (laughs) She was often absent during John's childhood and his brothers, particularly his older brother Manuel, often took on parenting roles and duties such as cooking and helping John get dressed for school. Birthdays were not celebrated, and at Christmas there were no trees or presents. Yeah, and normally we we bring this up in the beginning, but he is obviously a Latinx. Um, oh Mexican, yeah, forgot to mention that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> gentleman of Mexican descent. So um, might have figured that out. Yeah, sorry, sorry. With the, when we got into the history, we just got ahead of ourselves. But we yeah. always like to point that out. I was listening to some podcasts because we're doing some research on the um, baseline killer for reasons we can't discuss. But um, <laughs> uh, I was playing other podcast episodes, not from us, but from other podcasters. And not once do they mention that Gudo is a black guy. Or, oh my and gosh. how that might have played into the story. Into the story, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was, was it all white people? Yeah. That, that's why, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, you heard it here, folks, at Fruit Loops. Uh, race matters uh, in all things. So that's why we talk about it. Uh, so John had trouble with language and he had developmental delays. Uh, he had night terrors and family members said he would talk to things that weren't there. Um, he would see shadows even in preschool. And instead of helping John with these issues, Hilda encouraged a belief in brujería. By the way, um, welcome to Culture Corner. Um, so brujería, I think, is really, really scary or even voodoo or um, like uh, any kind of maybe spiritual practice is kind of scary to maybe white America or um, Western like normal culture. But I don't think I mean, like I've heard some of my aunts talk about brujas in our family and um, while, you know, they're not like babysitting us. <laughs> um, it's, it's not, it's not, it's that, not that unusual. It's not, yeah. It's not like, Holy Santa Maria. It's not like a big, <laughs> it's not that big of a d- deal. It's not like the assumption 
doesn't go to oh they're casting spells and um you know turning turning they're people's evil. heads small yeah, and they're yeah. evil um <laughs> it, it's more of a like when i hear it i think of like medicine it's like folk medicine yeah, yeah yeah so anyway from his early days in school john was described as troubled with a quick temper and low self-esteem he had few friends Growing up, he often exhibited signs of mental health issues that were never thoroughly treated, and he was in special ed. When his mom, Hilda, was asked later why she didn't get him some help, she replied that she didn't think he had any problems. In high school, John joined the ROTC. Don't know what it stands for, but it's like military school for high school kids. Um, He was also on the swim team, and although not the best swimmer, to the swim coach, he stood out because he was so dedicated and he worked so hard. He wasn't particularly tall, but in great shape, and the coach took to calling him Big John in order to build up his self-esteem. He was also in a dance troupe doing Mexican folk dancing, a.k.a. Baile Floclorico, at parades and at parties. Reports are that he was very good at dancing and that he was very proud of the fact that he could do a backflip. Yeah, he would get a lot of attention that way. And he (laughs) had dreams of joining the military and, quote, being all that he could be. Mm. By the way, I have such fond memories of Baile Floclorico when I was a little girl. Like when we had pep rallies at school, the <laughs> the Baile Floclorico troupe would come in. Oh. And when there were parties, they would, cool. they would be at the party. Like it was just and at parades and, and festivals. Like they were just and it was every dance has a story. Fun. And yeah. it's, it's just mesmerizing. Anyway, I digress. So at home, uh, his father was very abusive towards Hilda and John, sometimes beating Hilda to the point where her eyes were so bruised and puffy that she could not see. John's father would call him stupid and worthless. And his mother sometimes called him Mongolo, which is the Spanish equivalent to the R word um, referring to mental disability. John suffered frequent beatings from his father until his parents split up and his father left. One night when John was about 14, his father came and got him and took him to a bar and bought him a beer. (laughs) (laughs) Could have just named him Sue uh, to make him tough. Uh, The next morning when he woke up, his mother was calling for him to help her. His father had spent the night too drunk to drive home and was attacking Hilda. All the anger welled up in him and he punched his father in the face and knocked him out. Uh, John rarely saw him after that. So obviously these are patterns of PTSD in this boy's life. Yeah. Hilda began pushing John towards sex work as early as age 12. His mother told him that it was a viable option, and he eventually followed in the family tradition of sex work at his mother's suggestion. In high school, he had sexual relationships with both men and women. And that, we find, will continue into his adulthood. Uh, When he was a junior in high school, John had a relationship and lived with a woman named Gina, who was 10 years older than him and who had two young children. Gina got John to quit the dance troupe out of jealousy due to the amount of female attention he received. Eventually, John was kicked out of the ROTC due to lack of discipline. And when he graduated from high school at age 19, he was reading and doing math at a fourth grade level. Gina and John broke up because she felt like being in a relationship was like 
having a third child and she was 10 years older than him. So no wonder. Yeah. And uh, yeah, John moved back in with Hilda. And I find this part of the story with Gina disturbing because he was still in high school and yeah, she was 10 years older than him. And um, if the genders were reversed, we Mm -hmm. people would be horrified, but this is just part of the story and nobody really talked about it. Yeah, I too um, find it. It certainly gives me a good head scratch um, that a 29 year old woman with two kids would have any time or interest in uh, basically a high school student. Um, Right. You know, then again, he was 18, 19. So she started dating him when he was a junior in high school. So he was probably around 17. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't Um, know. I find it disturbing. Yeah. Problematic to say the least. Um, John's dream of joining the military was dashed when he was unable to pass the written exam. Uh, He held a series of jobs at fast food restaurants, but without the goal of joining the military, his life lacked direction. John then had a few run-ins with the law over minor drug charges. In addition to using marijuana and quote-unquote roach pills, which is rohypnol, yes, the date rape drug. Oh! Yeah, he liked doing those for some reason. Mm. And he also liked huffing, which is inhaling the fumes from spray paint, solvents, or other common household chemicals in order to get high. Yeah, well, again, um, he had a pretty, um, we'll get into the ace thing at the end of the episode, but he had like all the markers of like trauma and um even though the date rape drug sounds really dangerous to somebody who's just trying to turn out the lights so you can go to sleep or yeah. like forget about your problem your life for a while. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me. Um, right. And uh, long-term users of inhalants often suffer from severe depression, mood changes, weight loss, coordination, irritability, and in some cases, permanent brain damage uh, and death. So don't do it kids. <laughs> Angela Camacho was born on November 11th, 1979. We don't know as much about her early life because she has been more reticent about speaking to the public, but uh, she was a Mexican national from Matamoros who immigrated to the United States. She was not known to use drugs or inhalants, but she was a special education student and a slow learner. Um, When she was 14, she was given an IQ test and she scored 62. Anything under 70 is considered intellectually disabled. Angela has been described as easily influenced, limited in conversational skills, and docile, a follower who usually went along with whatever someone told her to do. The one thing that both Angela and John shared was being born into and raised in abject poverty Mm. by the way sometimes that's that's like enough to um you know unite people unite people yeah Yeah, like so i'm married to old whitey and (laughs) um (laughs) like one thing i hear from my friends who are in relationships with people who are 
um, maybe people of color, other people of color or, or within their own ethnic group or race is that like you don't have to explain. Like I right. have a lot of explanatory. You got comments. a lot of explaining to do. I got a lot of explaining to do. To do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so like you're both poor, like you don't have to explain, you know what, what I mean? What that's like, yeah. Yeah. Um, Angela became pregnant while she was in high school and dropped out. Um, she was living with her child's father when she met John in 2000 or 2001, who was living in the same apartment complex. John used to inhale spray paint with Angela's then live-in boyfriend, but after witnessing the man verbally and physically abuse Angela, she and John became romantically involved. Camacho eventually left her former boyfriend and moved in with John, bringing her child Julissa with her, who at the time was less than a year old. John saw himself as Angela and Julissa's savior. Now we are going to get into the timeline, okay? <laughs> uh, at the time... She moved in with Rubio. Camacho was pregnant with another man's child, uh, but Rubio, Rubio did not care that she had children with different men. He accepted them all as his own, referring to Julissa as his daughter. When Camacho gave birth to a son, they named the boy John Estefan. The name Julissa was a variant on her biological father's name, Julian. Julissa, or Julie, had curly black hair, and she was very energetic, sweet, loving, caring, and innocent. When others were sad, she would comfort them. She shared everything with her siblings. Rubio was proud because he helped potty train her and helped her learn to speak. John Estefan was called Johnny, and he was named after Rubio. And they chose the middle name Estefan. I I saw this in, in a book, um, or actually I audibled it in a book, uh, <laughs> after Stefan from the 90s sitcom Family Matters, who was the alter ego, the cool version of Steve Urkel. And Rubio described him as a little tough guy. Soon after Johnny was born, Camacho became pregnant again. During this time, Rubio held a number of low-wage retail jobs and the family moved several times, including time spent in friends' houses and sometimes living on the streets. At two years and three months, Julissa was taken to a children's health center where she was described as dirty, her feet were black, wearing smelly clothes, and she was anemic. Johnny was four months old at the time and was also filthy with skin crusty, his clothes smelling of mildew. He was in the third percentile for height and fifth percentile for weight. Both children were described as having been covered in scars from mosquito bites and they were malnourished. For a time, the family lived in a one-bedroom apartment with no electricity or running water. When they were without a home, the couple and the children would sleep on a mattress in an alley or in abandoned houses. The family would eat dinners at a local soup kitchen. That is also where they got their mail. By the way, this is like we talked about the setting. I mean, this is some hardcore poverty. Yeah. Yeah. And to people who might listen to this family situation be like, why couldn't they just work harder? Um, because that's not enough to escape this type of situation. Yeah. Um, so they didn't have the skills. Uh huh. They couldn't figure their way out of it. And that's what happens when you don't have the education, the skills, the support from family, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. there was a lot of factors that um, kept them from um, just pick, lifting up themselves by their bootstraps. Right, um, right. And, and getting out of it. Sorry, t- 
tangent, but I just felt like I needed to say that. Anyway. Yeah. And I I can also hear people uh, saying, oh, they're neglecting their kids, but they were poor. (laughs) They were poor. Yeah. And um, it's I mean, it's a cycle, right? You you are perpetuating that which you were taught. And um, again, (laughs) they were poor. So it's difficult to like you know, when you're sleeping, do on all the, the things you got to do, gotta do. All yeah. the things you got to do. I yeah. can't even imagine taking care of kids in the, in the, how stressful that, that would be trying to take care of kids in that situation. That would, that, that would be a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. Um, but, uh, they, I think that they did the best, the that best that they, they could. could yeah. To, yeah. I mean, un, to, to a point. Uh, to a point. Yeah, yeah. The drugs and stuff. The, maybe yeah, not yeah. so much, but um, but but their situation is really difficult. Um, yeah, is what I'm getting at. Okay, yes. so you don't All have right. to yell at your phones anymore. <laughs> um, eventually, they moved into an apartment in a concrete building that had been a former grocery store, uh, made into apartments, and you can still see the building on Google Street view that was the first thing i looked up when i, I learned know. the address <laughs> so uh, it took me a while to find it because on satellite view it's not there it's gone so mm. but then when you go down onto street view you can still see it oh the uh they shared the apartment with rubio's mother hilda and a trans woman and a uh, sex worker named lorena hernandez uh the home was located on tyler street named after a, a, the american president john tyler after finding out that rubio was abusing spray paint in front of the children child protective services took custody of both Jalissa and johnny Rubio then worked really hard to find a job so that he could get the children back because he said that he adored them and would do anything for them. CPS returned the children after three or four months when Rubio found a job, but continued to visit the home to check in on the children and to test Rubio for illegal drug use. CPS stopped making home visits after Rubio found a steady job at the Golden Corral. But he lost this job in December of 2002, a month before Camacho and Rubio's daughter, Mary Jane, was born in January of 2003. Mary Jane was named after the drug. (laughs) John later said that he knew that it was inappropriate to name a child after a drug, but ever since he heard the name Mary Jane, he just liked it. It is pretty. Yeah. So during this time, in order to uh, make money to pay rent and provide for the children, Rubio did some odd jobs, but also some sex work. And with the money Rubio made through sex work, he was able to earn about $80 a day. So he was able to pay rent when it came due in January and February in 2003. But he did not have enough money for the March 11th payment. And the $175 that he did have, he thought somebody stole from him when he couldn't find his wallet. But actually, his wallet was later found in the apartment after the murders. Yeah. For the two weeks prior to the murders, Rubio said he was on a paint huffing binge and hadn't been eating or sleeping. This put a rift between Rubio and Camacho because she didn't approve. He also spent a lot of time away from the house socializing, which Camacho resented. Um. Yeah, I have these three kids here uh, yep. by myself. Um, and you're out gallivanting around. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, a few days before the murders, Rubio asked uh, his brother Rodrigo for money, but his brother refused. He didn't approve of Rubio's life choices and how he often depended on family members to support him. Rubio also asked his brother Jose if the family could move in with them, which was also rejected. And around this time, the family found out that the food stamp benefits for the children were being cut off because of a problem with the the children's paperwork. A neighbor who was 11 at the time recalled that he used to play with the Rubio and Camacho kids. He remembered their diapers would be weighted down. The night before the murder, he said he saw Rubio outside with Johnny and Rubio was hitting the little boy. The neighbors threatened to call CPS and Rubio said he didn't care if they called CPS or not. That evening, a neighbor did contact CPS, but the children were dead the next day. Mm. According to Angela, on March 8th, the children became sick and had fevers. On March 10th, while the family was riding a bus home from a medical center, a woman gave Johnny a piece of candy. Uh, Rubio then became convinced that that woman had cast a spell on the children, causing them to be sick. Rubio was also convinced that as they got off the bus, he saw a woman who had the mark of the beast on her and Rubio told the family to run, which they did with two babies in their arm and a toddler in tow. When they returned home, Rubio had Camacho use the ritual of the huevo, sweeping an egg over her body and then breaking the egg into a glass of water. And this is neither here nor there, but that is not actually how the ritual should be done. It was an attempt at curanderismo. Curanderos, or Latinx healers, are trained practitioners who use folk remedies to help with the diseases of the body, mind, and spirit. And Laura Tillman, who was the author of the book, The Long Shadow of Small Ghosts, she interviewed a couple of curanderos uh, for the book, and they were offended at the notion that this could be classified as curandismo, because only a trained curandero could assess what the egg meant. And it is also used to cure someone, not to diagnose. In any case, uh, the way which the egg yolk floated convinced Rubio and Camacho that someone had done something bad to Julissa. When Hilda came home that night, Rubio asked her for her share of the rent. Rather than argue with him, she gathered some clothing and made to leave. As she was leaving, Rubio asked her why she was doing witchcraft on them. She was surprised and said, I don't do that to my enemies, much less my own sons. At some point that evening or in the early morning, Rubio nailed the back door off of the kitchen shut because according to Camacho, we didn't want anyone or any bad spirits to come in through that door. Um, And a uh, quick layout of the apartment. It's like a giant hallway because remember it used to be a grocery store. And um, there's no windows and there was a front door and a back door. And that's yep. that's the only way for light and air and anything to come in and out. Yep. Um, the only people who know exactly what happened in the apartment after that are Rubio and Camacho. And their stories are different and have changed over time. And this is the really hard part. So if you don't feel up to listening to this part, please fast forward a few minutes. Yeah. So here we go. Okay. According to Rubio, he began to feel weird. He heard his pet hamsters fighting each other, which was unusual. He described what he saw next as being like a movie or something I saw on TV. 
The hamsters would look at him with a nasty expression and then growl. Um, I don't think hamsters growl. Uh, <laughs> well, that's what he saw. They just squeak. Uh, Rubio became convinced they were possessed and decided to kill the hamsters, which he did by spraying them with hairspray so they would choke. He then brought the cage into the front room of the house, took them out one at a time and smashed their heads with a hammer. He then flushed them down the toilet. Julissa, hearing the commotion, woke up and came into the front room. According to Rubio, she then started acting strangely, looking at Rubio, quote-unquote, weird, and talking in a, quote-unquote, demonized voice, and that she was two people in one. Camacho had awoken by this point and came into the front room. Rubio asked Julissa who she was because she was acting like someone else, and she told Rubio that she was his grandmother. He began to speak with Julissa as if she was his grandmother, and Julissa would respond. Rubio claimed that Julissa said, yo es ella, e ella es yo. I am her and she is me. Rubio believed that his grandmother was possessing Julie's body and that Julie and Mary Jane were then sharing the same body. He then saw Julissa cutting the tape off of an electrical outlet, which Rubio had put over that outlet to prevent the children from hurting themselves. He said that it appeared to him that Julissa was cutting the tape with a pair of scissors and then trying to give the scissors to Johnny so that he could stick them in the outlet and electrocute himself. Rubio said that he believed his grandmother's spirit possessing Julissa's body was attempting to harm John. He shook Julissa, blew in her face in an attempt to cast the grandmother out. He then put John back in his crib and began to choke Julissa. He thought he had succeeded in casting out the grandmother's spirit, but Julissa probably either passed out or died when Rubio choked her. According to Rubio, he then called to her and she revived, but began to say that she wanted to harm the children to make them and him suffer. Camacho had entered the room at some point while Rubio was choking Julissa. After Julissa revived and spoke, Rubio asked Camacho to hold Julissa down while he choked her. He said Camacho did so, but that Julissa didn't want to die. He then told Camacho to go to the kitchen and bring him a knife, which she did, returning with two knives. Rubio then stabbed Julissa several times in the chest, then turned her over and stabbed her in the back of the head because he wanted to remove her brain. He said Camacho was holding down Julissa's feet and legs, but turning her head away to avoid seeing what was happening. Rubio said Julissa's lips were still moving and talking, and this scared him. So over the next five to ten minutes, he cut off Julissa's head. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, 
revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Did you know one out of six couples struggle with infertility, including old Whitey and me? Seriously, that is a staggering statistic that most people don't know or aren't ready to talk about. We need good data and information about our bodies in order to have informed conversations with our doctors and make the best decisions for ourselves and our futures. Good data and information about our bodies is crucial when it comes to our body autonomies, especially in the year of our Lord 2022. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. Traditional testing can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility gets you the same info at a fraction of the price. And if you go to modernfertility.com fruit, you can get $20 off your test. Also, and this is really cool, mm. if you have an HSA or an FSA, you can put those dollars towards Modern Fertility. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Now, if you want kids today, or in the future, never or are undecided. It's important to have clinically sound information about your body, which can help you make the decision that's right for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That means your test will cost $179 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That's modernfertility.com fruit. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life, so it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps, but there's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. Now, we are huge advocates for mental health here at Fruit HQ. Oh, yes. And we have both used therapy throughout our lives, including BetterHelp, and especially in these past several years to help us deal with challenging times, Mm -hmm. challenging thoughts, feelings and experiences. Amen. Yes. And uh, now I had a recent, you know, conversation with my therapist. She was saying sometimes it's just good to talk and get some perspective. You don't have to go to a therapist just because stuff is wrong. So Right, right. And BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And some people get really anxious about that. So Oh, yes. And it is much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash fruit. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash fruit. In the book, The Long Shadow of Small Ghosts, he wrote to the author, Laura Tillman, that he cut her head off with a machete. He eventually put Jaleesa's body in the kitchen sink so that he could wash it. Um, this is not getting any easier. No. Nope. Um, 
So Rubio then noticed Mary Jane looking at him, believing that she was possessed. He then choked Mary Jane and she seemed to die more easily, but she then uh, revived just as Julissa had. He then decided he had to decapitate Mary Jane as well. Now, this is the baby. Oh, okay. He told the author, Laura Tillman, in a letter that he wasn't able to completely cut off the head with the knife and couldn't find the machete because the witches must have taken it. So he ripped her head off with his bare hands. After doing so, he brought her body into the kitchen where he proceeded to cleanse the girls' bodies by pouring water into their throats where they had been cut. Um, Rubio and Camacho then killed Johnny in the same manner. Rubio said that little Johnny's decapitated head tried to suck the blood from his body, so he put little Johnny's head into a bucket of water. Camacho said that after all three children were killed, she and Rubio took a shower together. Rubio told her that he was dying and so they should make love for the last time, which they did. He says it was consensual and she says he raped her. Camacho said that she then asked John to kill her too and that he tried to strangle her but couldn't follow through. Afterward, the couple went to the store to buy milk, which is something they regularly did to buy milk for the children. Um, Back at home, Camacho told Rubio that she wanted to bury the children. They gathered the children's bodies along with the knife they used into a trash bag. They washed the bodies of the children and cleaned up the apartment. Sort of. So now we are going to move into the next part of the story, which is the investigation and the arrest. On the morning of March 11th, 2003, their roommate Lorena Hernandez stopped by the apartment after having been staying elsewhere for several days. Seeing Rubio, Lorena became concerned because it was obvious to her that Rubio had been hitting the spray paint pretty hard. When she tried to enter the apartment, Rubio stopped her, saying, My old lady tried to kill herself last night. Right now we're going to kill ourselves. Fuck everyone. Lorena scolded Rubio, telling him that he shouldn't talk like that around the kids. Rubio pushed Lorena outside and slammed the door. Lorena pounded on the door and demanded to be let in, but Rubio refused. Lorena was frightened, but she left and did not call the police. She hoped that Rubio would feel better later and everything would be okay. We were all hoping for that. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm sure Lorena was reticent to call the police for obvious reasons. Similar reasons that you have for not wanting to call the police. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she was hoping for the best. Yeah. But at about 7 p.m. that night, Rubio's brother, Jose Rubio, and his wife, Maria Alvarez, also known as Beva, flagged down a police car being driven by an officer, Cervantes. Beva told Officer Cervantes that, quote, the babies are dead. And Jose said, quote, they have no heads. Officer Cervantes later described the feeling that he had when they told him this as being like as if someone told him, come to my house. We captured an alien and I want you to see it. It's alive. <laughs> yeah, no, that is um, <laughs> just weirdness. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I was glad to hear him describe it that way, because I think um, then you kind of get like, this is really crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. So Officer Cervantes was directed to the apartment building and they pointed out an apartment that w- had no visible number on the door. Jose knocked on the door of the apartment with Officer Cervantes behind him. Rubio answered the door and Officer Cervantes asked Rubio what was going on, to which he answered the kids. 
Rubio invited him into the apartment, which was littered with garbage, bags, toys, shopping carts, empty water bottles, and piles of clothes. He saw Camacho sitting on a small bed or futon. She was looking at the floor and would not look up. Jose demanded of Rubio, tell him. Rubio then sat down next to Camacho and said, the kids are in the back room. Officer Cervantes had already called for backup, but fearing for the safety of the children, he investigated. Going down a hallway towards the back, the place smelled strongly of bleach. The door to a room off the hallway to the right was open, and Officer Cervantes looked in. There he saw the body of an infant lying on the bed, and the infant had no head. He backed out of the room, called dispatch to advise, and then asked, What happened? Rubio sighed and stood up, then said, arrest me. Officer Cervantes calmly ordered everyone out of the apartment and John Allen Rubio was placed in handcuffs. The bodies of three-year-old Julissa Angela Quesada and two-month-old Mary Jane Rubio were found stuffed inside a garbage bag hidden behind the crib. The children's heads were found inside a separate garbage bag. Investigators described the bloody scene as horrific. I can only imagine. Mm-hmm. There were numerous blood pools and stains in the kitchen and on the floors, a bucket full of bloody water and bloody knives in the kitchen and bedroom. Soaking in the bathroom were the bloody clothing that Rubio and Camacho had been wearing at the time of the murders. Rubio told police they killed the children because they thought they were possessed and they didn't want them to grow up evil. Camacho at first said that brujeria was the reason that the children had been killed. She later said that it was because of money problems. In a third statement, she said it was a mixture of both. Autopsies showed that the three children had been smothered, then stabbed several times before their heads were severed. The mortuary was able to put the children's bodies back together in order to make them presentable for their funerals, which took place at the Boys and Girls Club. There were 300 people in attendance and doves were released for the children. Now we're going to get into the trial. Uh, Camacho was given four IQ tests by her attorneys. The first test was administered on March 14, 2003, three days after the murders. And the last test was on March 5, 2004. And she scored below 70 on all of them, which on an IQ test, again, marks the legal line for intellectual disability. On the last test, she scored 51. Hamilton wrote, we have a 51. Sorry, I had to turn, I had to turn, turn up the, the joy yeah, button. Yeah, that sorry. was rough. That, yeah. that was rough. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Very sorry. She pleaded guilty to three counts of capital murder and was sentenced to three life terms. Her attorneys somehow were unable to prove that she had an intellectual disability and would therefore be ineligible for the death penalty. But because she took the plea agreement, uh, she was spared from that. Had she been convicted and sentenced to death, she would have become the first Mexican national female on Texas's death row. That's surprising to me. Yeah. Um, so thanks for thanks for putting that in the yeah. script. Uh, <laughs> after his arrest, Rubio was diagnosed as having paranoid schizophrenia and he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Rubio blamed his witchcraft practicing mother and grandmother for casting a spell, causing the children to become possessed. And his attorney argued that the story was almost too far fetched for someone with an IQ of 76 to con concoct. As a child, his IQ was measured at 92, which uh, is in the normal range. 
Yeah, I think all that uh, paint huffing probably. Yeah. Was not uh, good for his knocked, brain. Knocked off a few points. Yeah. Two psychiatrists testified during his trial that Rubio was a paranoid schizophrenic with a history of substance abuse. They testified that Rubio's chronic drug use, especially his inhaling of spray paint, contributed to the murders. Mary Anderson, a psychiatrist who was a witness for the prosecution, said Rubio's inhalation of spray paint over time may have created a psychotic state, but she added that he knew his actions were wrong. Rubio and his attorney delivered a request for the death penalty moments after prosecutors began their opening statements in the penalty phase of his trial. Although prosecutors also sought the death penalty, they said Rubio was just trying to play on jurors' emotions. Prosecutor Paxton Warner said, Do not give this man the answer that he wants because he asked for it. What he's trying to do now is what he's done his entire life. He is trying to prey on you and prey on your emotions. This is not about remorse, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, this is all about him. <laughs> I always uh, like get a, a little uh, ugh in my stomach yeah. when I hear how prosecutors sort of like bend things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, a, or any attorney really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. That's true. That's what, that's their job, right? Yeah, it's it's uh, their job, but yeah, it's kind of gross. Uh, so jurors sentenced John Allen Rubio to death by injection a day after convicting him of three counts of capital murder, one for each of the children he admitted killing. Rubio has since pursued appeals, and I believe his sentence was overturned in 2007. He was tried a second time. It was like a technicality. So um, Angela, in the first trial, there was a recording of her version of events and Camacho's attorneys weren't able to um, cross-examine her. And for that reason, he was granted a second trial. That was my understanding from the book. So he was tried again a second time and resentenced to death in 2010. So uh, now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, tell us, Beth. Angela Camacho is serving her time at the Christina Melton Crane Unit in Gatesville, Texas. John Allen Rubio is still on death row at the Allen B. Polensky unit in West Livington, Texas. He regrets what he did. Interestingly enough, in interviews, he still talks about the children with great love and affection. His mother believed he was innocent um, until she died in 2019. Tres Angeles Community Garden was built on a lot adjacent to the apartment building where the crime occurred, in part as a memorial to the three children. There was a long debate in Brownsville about whether the city should demolish the apartment building where the murders took place. Many locals believed that the building held some evil presence and were in favor of raising it, but some felt that it should be left as a reminder, and historians were also against demolishing it. There was also a proposal to make the building into a center that in some way would act as a place of prevention of these types of crimes, which I think would have been pretty cool. Yeah. But uh, ultimately, the apartment building was demolished and turned into a park, the Tres Angeles Park and Community Garden. Aw. Um, Armando Villalobos, the smug DA who prosecuted John at his <laughs> second trial, and he painted John and Angela as evil criminals who put themselves 
in the position that they were in, i.e. poverty. They chose to do drugs. They chose to be poor and they chose to hurt their children. Well, in 2014, it was discovered that he was involved in a cash for favors corruption scheme (laughs) and he was sentenced to 13 years in prison. He was also ordered to pay $340,000 in restitution and he was convicted Uh, on seven counts, including racketeering, bribery, and extortion for accepting more than $100,000 from attorneys in exchange for favorable treatment of criminal cases. Even in prison, he managed to view himself and his actions uh, apart from those of the criminals that he put away. Gross. Yeah. After finding the children's bodies and working the crime scene, Officer Cervantes was affected for the rest of his life. Prior to that, he had thought of fatherhood as simply being able to provide for his family and working long hours to do so. Afterwards, he decided to change his outlook and his priorities, and he made efforts to spend at least an hour a day with his family outside of work, which I thought was one nice silver lining to this story. Yeah, and I think um, sort of researching this story kind of made me like hug my kids a little a tighter. little closer yeah yeah um and like i don't know put the phone like put the phone down and just sort of spend a little more time with them yeah, yeah appreciate my time with them um anyway um if yeah you're right that is the silver lining in this case it's a reminder that um life is short and it is precious and love your Um, children and love your children um the best way you can um so now we're going to get into what we think uh made the killers snap as well as our takeaways um I'll start. Las drogas, la locura y la pobreza. Drugs, mental illness, and poverty. They are in, they were in a tough spot financially, living in poverty. And the loss of John's job and finding out there was a problem with their food stamps earlier didn't help. John's mom was supposed to help with the rent on that day and she couldn't. And oh, he lost his wallet. Uh, And the drugs didn't help. Um, John's emerging schizophrenia uh didn't help and angela later recounted seeing visions of an evil woman in black um hanging about uh her um area and that didn't help either and her low intelligence probably made it impossible for her to go against whatever john suggested these are just my thoughts i don't know if that's true and um you know like there were um different like um interventions in the kids in in the family's lives like cps was involved john and angela took parenting classes and drug tests but it wasn't enough and um John was, uh, you know, was he possessed by the devil? Did he have a bad trip or was he in the throes of schizophrenia? Um, I don't know. I just think that this is just all I can say about this case is it's just a tragedy. And, um, you know, justice was served in that Camacho got life in prison and Rubio got the death penalty. But no matter how you slice it, three babies are dead. So, yeah, yeah, it's really sad. Mm hmm. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. 
Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. Um, the whole story is really sad uh, for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we both listened to the book, Laura Tillman book. Uh-huh. Um, and she talked about uh, something called foyer adieu, mm-hmm. which is a shared psychotic disorder or induced delusional disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, in these cases, there's usually a dominant person with a delusional belief, which is then imposed on another person or persons. And stress and social isolation are the main contributors because stress can induce mental illness and social isolation can create an environment where a delusion can cultivate. Mm. So although there's no indication that Rubio was socially isolated, Camacho was. Mm-hmm. Um, she did not have a job. Uh, at one point, she wanted to babysit, but Rubio didn't want her to. Mm-hmm. So she was kind of stuck at home with the kids, didn't really go out. Mm-hmm. Her entire life was John Rubio and the children. And she was very susceptible due to her low intelligence and her docility. So he had these delusions, which um, they said he had uh, schizophrenia, but he was also doing a lot of uh, he was huffing mm-hmm. paint and um, not sleeping. So I think he had a psychotic break. That's what I think. Yeah. And um, he got her to go along with um, his delusions. Yeah. And um, I don't think either of them knew how to take care of themselves, let alone children. They both had low uh, intelligence and mm-hmm. they did not, they were not given skills. They came from families that didn't take care of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so they just didn't have any skills. They were poor. They, um, they didn't have the intelligence. And I think it just got to be too much. I don't think Rubio was of sane mind. And I do think Camacho was deeply influenced by his delusional thinking. Yeah. And they existed in a culture that believes in brujeria and demonic possession. So I don't think they thought that these delusions were crazy. I think they they thought they were happening. Yeah. And according to author Laura Tillman, quote, I think you have to look at these beliefs to understand the crime because they affected the way that the crime was committed and may have impacted why John didn't receive treatment for symptoms that might have otherwise registered as those of 
paranoid schizophrenia. And if you recall his mom earlier in his life, she said she didn't think he had any problems, you know? Yeah. And Laura Tillman also said, I think it's telling that defense attorney Ed Stapleton says that members of his own defense team believed a devil possession was at play. So, you know, that's the culture that they lived in. Yeah. are going to get into how not to get murdered so if you love true crime and you don't want to die here's a tip for you (laughs) (laughs) it feels good to laugh after 45 (laughs) minutes all that yeah Yeah. (laughs) 45 minutes of fuck shit (laughs) yeah oh boy Ah, this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. What do you got, Beth? So uh, we mentioned this quite a few times. Laura Tillman wrote The Long Shadow of Small Ghosts is the name of the book that she wrote. And in it, she said, quote, people say heinous crimes do not teach lessons. They only confirm the worst suspicions about what can happen in our world. And that's what she's quoting other people as saying. Mm -hmm. It can be deeply unsettling to see the roots of these crimes in our midst, but recognizing and thinking critically about the source of violent crime is really the only hope we have if our aspiration is to live in a more peaceful society, unquote. And I agree with her. That's why people love true crime. Yeah. Well, that's why why I I think some people are just fascinated uh, because they like the train wreck part. You know, they want to see gore and and violence and, and stuff like that. And they also think about people as like good or bad. Um, and people who commit these crimes are just monsters. They don't mm-hmm. want to know why they committed the crime. They just want to dismiss them as monsters. And and uh, they're not really interested in figuring it out. But I am. <laughs> yeah, same. And so let's talk about things that we can do to help at-risk children. Mm, talk about it. Yeah. According to the CDC's ACE study, uh, preventing adverse childhood experiences, so ACEs are adverse childhood experiences, a large and growing body of research indicates that toxic stress during childhood can harm the most basic levels of the nervous endocrine and immune systems, and that such exposures can even alter the physical structure of DNA. Changes to the brain from toxic stress can affect such things as attention, impulsive behavior, decision-making, learning, emotion, and response to stress. Children growing up under these conditions often struggle to learn and complete schooling. They are at increased risk of becoming involved in crime and violence, using alcohol or drugs, and engaging in other health risk behaviors, like early initiation of sexual activity, unprotected sex, and suicide attempts. They are more susceptible to disease, illness, and mental health challenges over their lifetime, and children growing up with toxic stress may have difficulty forming healthy and stable relationships. They may also have unstable work histories as adults and struggle with finances, family, jobs, and depression throughout life, the effects of which can be passed on to their own children. 
but ACEs and their associated harms are preventable. Creating and sustaining safe, stable, nurturing relationships and environments for all children and families can prevent ACEs and help all children reach their full health and life potential. The evidence tells us that ACEs can be prevented by strengthening economic supports for families, promoting social norms that protect against violence and adversity, ensuring a strong start for children and paving a way for them to reach their full potential, teaching skills to help parents and youth handle stress, manage emotions, and tackle everyday challenges, connecting youth to caring adults and activities, and intervening to lessen immediate and long-term harms. So we've, we've talked about defunding the police, and what it means is basically shifting some funds away from the police and towards social programs and initiatives. And I think we should definitely be supporting that idea. And as a society, we have to stop being reactive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And start being proactive, mm-hmm. working towards preventing crime before it can happen by addressing social ills, especially as it pertains to children. So, you know, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Great tips. You know, and you can, t- anybody can go online and take the ACE score. So now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where you we shout out any content by any marginalized groups, really, or any true crime goodies. Uh, so one of our fruities, uh, Marlene, uh, love you, girl, uh, posted a short film in the group by her cousin. It's called Good Night, Irene, and it's written and directed by Sterling Harjo. Um, and it's so good, funny and sad at the same time. I loved it. So I looked up all, all of his feature films and, uh, put them on my watch list. Yeah. I really, I really liked that film. It was really good. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I love that she keeps throwing at us more like indigenous, um, content, um, events, art. Yeah film so keep them coming you are keep it coming yes we need that so we really appreciate it so i just wanted to say unsolved mysteries is back (laughs) yay (laughs) haven't had a hip-hop air horn in a while (laughs) (laughs) it's on netflix it's a new modern version but they use the same creepy music touched up a little bit and i have to say i got chill bumps (laughs) yeah it's awesome yeah they pay homage to Robert Stack in the opening credits at the very end. You can see his picture. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. And each episode is one story instead of like the original where they had multiple stories. But that means that they can take a deep dive into each story. And the stories are so weird and fascinating. So thumbs up. Yes, absolutely. Five stars. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Beth. Um, You're welcome. Well, uh, that's it for today. Uh, But where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment even a dollar would help and as always we have merch for sale on our website that's right this is a we
weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Bill Huffman. And I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.